Hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR Global Podcast. Um, just before we get into things, we should say that if you're slightly confused to see this in your feed, I mean, we did one last week, but nonetheless, if you're slightly confused, it's because we are migrating these podcasts over from the TLDR Podcast channel, where they used to be, onto TLDR UK and TLDR Global, um, because YouTube have introduced a new sort of podcast feed. Um, but whether or not you're pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised, that, that should hopefully clear everything up. In this podcast, uh, me and Rory Taylor, TLDR Global's lead writer, uh, are going to be doing a sort of year in review of, of 2023 and looking forward maybe a little bit uh, into 2024. We were trying to figure out a nice way of doing a year in review. You know, we we're going to do maybe like which country won or maybe go through each continent, but they just, that's too much to cover. So the way we're going to do it is instead of doing unreported stories and then a main story, me and Rory have both picked our unreported story of the year. So a sort of trend or a theme or a long-running story that we think hasn't been sufficiently covered by the mainstream media, and we're just going to do one of those each and then go into the Global Lead Leaderboard. Uh, so with all that being said, Rory, what is your unreported story of the year? Wow, it's a lot of, a lot of pressure, yeah. Um, so mine is the, the ongoing civil war in Myanmar. Um, it's been going on since February, well, yeah, since early 2021, basically. So it's not new this year, but it has, uh, in, particularly in the last half of this year, really taken on a new trajectory. Um, we've actually made two videos about it on this channel, so people should watch those if they want to. And I'm sure we'll make some more in the future. Um, the reason why I think this is a really big story um, is that there's been a lot of conflicts this year. You know, Ukraine has continued, Sudan, things broke out in Sudan, obviously in Gaza as well. Um, but for the last few years, the civil war in Myanmar has has been, has created like a really, really serious humanitarian crisis. Um, and largely since it broke out, you didn't really hear much about territorial change between the rebels and the, the military government. And the military government had the, basically the center of Myanmar, yes. and then there's sort of a whole load of yeah. like region on the outskirts. Yeah. Um, and they had kind of, uh, th their strategy, the military strategy had broadly been using airstrikes and aerial, aerial bombardments of targets, um, which had been devastating really, lots of civilian casualties reported as well. Um, but what's really changed this year, and I think hasn't been reported enough, has been this major new offensive by um, ethnic uh, minorities in the kind of peripheral regions of Myanmar. They've launched this new offensive um, against the military regime and they've really started to pick up momentum. They've taken hundreds of outposts from the military. They've taken key uh, towns and transit locations um, to the point where there's really quite like valid questions being asked about how long the military regime in Myanmar can hold on for. Um, so for those that don't know, Myanmar is a very, very ethnically diverse country. Um, it's also massive and very like forested. Yeah, it's enormous, it's isn't it? yeah it's I remember doing videos on it, and yeah, a the, the size in one of those countries you just don't realise yeah. happens to be enormous. Um, and also, if you, I might be wrong about this, but haven't there been a series of sort of latent yeah. ethnic separatist movements in those peripheral provinces yes. for a while now? So since so, so Myanmar's for I think fifty of its sixty years of independence, Myanmar has been ruled by a military regime, and through those years these ethnic groups in these Because um, the military regime states. is dominated by an ethnic group. Yes, the main, the main ethnic group in Myanmar. Um, these ethnic groups have been fighting, I think initially for like full separatism and, and kind of over the years it's been more like, you know, just for greater autonomy and greater representation, that type of thing. 
Um, and those, uh, some of those conflicts were still going on even during the short-lived period of democracy last, in the last decade. Um, but now there's this, they're not working arm in arm with the rebels, uh, as in the kind of main opposition rebels, I should say, but there's this kind of tacit agreement between the ethnic rebels and the main rebels. In my that, head I was thinking it's like Labour and the Lib Dems, but yeah. only fairly yeah, superficially. Yeah. Um, that, you know, they, they are now united in the kind of common goal of overthrowing the military regime. Um, and that has been really damaging to the regime. Um, so this question of whether it will survive and what comes next, I think is a really important one because it is a massive country, um, definitely overlooked, but very important to regional players and international players as well. China has a big border with it and China has had a big role to play in this conflict as well. Because um, I remember when it first happened, there was quite a lot of chat, at least in the Western press, about the fact that a lot of people accused China of lending legitimacy to the regime, yeah. or at least like uh, treating it quite pragmatically, being like, we're still gonna keep doing business with them. Yeah, I think that was probably as a result of China wanting to make sure they could kind of secure their border and, and yeah. have some kind of relationship with the, the neighboring country. But China seems to have lost patience with the regime now. Um, there's been this big kind of, kind of separate underreported story of this phenomenon of yeah, online uh, like cyber scam centers yeah. popping up all over Southeast Asia and they're these big compounds where people are trafficked to to like be forced into carrying out online scams effectively and China has been really trying to crack down on these and they've been urging the uh, military government in Myanmar to, to help them with that largely to no avail and now China has kind of lost patience and is uh, you know potentially walking back on its support for the regime and may look towards those rebel groups in the uh, border regions to actually crack down on these scams. But we don't, would that involve like active support for like rebel militias? Yeah, I, I doubt it. It's not, it very, not very, it's not like on brand yeah, in China. Yeah, it's probably more like just stepping back and allowing things to happen rather than you know, trying to prevent things from happening. So this big operation that was launched, it's called Operation 1027, was this new offensive um, against the uh, military regime. There was kind of, rumours that, well effectively analysts said it couldn't have happened and it couldn't have happened so effectively had the Chinese wanted to stop it happening. So they didn't necessarily help them with it but the fact that it happened so successfully suggests that China at least tacitly approved of it. Um, I think going into 2024 there's a real chance that the, the military government in Myanmar either collapses through military defeat or you know there might be like an internal coup if parts of the military think this isn't going well we need to you know, change the leadership and try and come to some kind of agreement. Um, I think those are kind of, uh, you know, not kind of, yeah, not impossible yeah. outcomes for next year. Yeah, I think it's, I remember when this first kicked off, I remember the main thing, the main impression I got from the, the press reports was just quite how like demoralized the army was yeah. and how unpopular they were with the publics and the bits of territory that they controlled. Yeah. I remember there's a story about them trying to stop general strikes because people were just like, oh, we're just not going to work under you guys. Yeah. Um, I guess one thing with this is, in a sense, it's a good news story, isn't it? I mean, yeah. we all like a military hunter being overthrown. Yeah. That's great. But you do worry that in a country that's so ethnically diverse with so many sort of like historically competitive ethnic separatist movements, you know, might, that could lead to some, at least some political chaos in the short term. Yeah. Um, I mean, if the, if the military government did fall, then you have the question of who replaces them and, and what kind of country do they create and can yeah. they work with those kind of pro-autonomy ethnic groups yeah. to create a, a proper like federal state that 
kind of gives a fair amount of powers, you know, spreads power fairly around the country. And the, the main opposition um, say they want to do that. And, uh, you know, that's obviously a good thing, but whether they actually can achieve that yeah. is another question because historically they haven't been able to achieve that. It feels like a trite point to make, but I think quite a lot of this weirdly interacts with the global economy in sort of slightly uncomfortable ways in that often those like, efforts to form a multi-ethnic federal state, Ethiopia is like this sort of archetypal yeah. example there, they only really work well when the, when the economy is booming because you can sort of like, you can use that to paper over the, the sort of cracks in, uh, well, you, the ideological cracks yeah. as it were. Um, and in that respect, you'd hope that basically macroeconomic conditions, especially in that region, improve uh, going into 2024 because it's been pretty difficult so far. Um, you happy with that? You yeah. Think? That's, yeah. That, was, that was, as I always say, <laughs> that was a really good underreported. So story. yeah, I think definitely underreported this year and also one to watch going through uh, 2024 as well. I guess part of it is just competing with a lot of other conflicts yeah. in airtime. Yeah. Like it's, you know, there's, there's quite a lot going on. People haven't noticed. Yeah. Um, What's yours then? Mine is, my underreported story is, is less like specific than yours. And it is just that how well the US is doing. Okay. And I think I talked about this last year, but there was just such a gap, to my mind at least, between like commentary and reality when it comes to like America. And if you look at the commentary about America, if you just look at the glance at the front page, you think it's doing terribly. You know, like you've got Biden, deeply, deeply unpopular, partisanship at an all-time high. Foreign policy looks chaotic. I mean, you've got deadlock over Ukraine, you've got impotence over Israel, you've got continued tensions with China, sanctions being relatively ineffective on China, uh, especially like chip sanctions. And I, I get that and I take all that. But I think if you just like step back a little bit, then America is, or compare it to other countries, America is having a really great time. I mean, the most obvious one is just when it comes to the economy. You know, like we're, we're in Europe at the moment. Yeah, um, or the UK, UK and within Europe. Um, and the European economy is still struggling with the aftershocks of not just like Putin's invasion of Ukraine, but the, the associated disruption to energy supplies. And, you know, if you look at most national forecasting institutions, they will tell you that you know, countries like the UK, France, Germany can expect to grow maybe point. 8% this year, maybe 1.5% next year. And that, that's, that's an optimistic um, prediction for the UK. The UK's trend growth, I think according to the ONS or the OBR, is at best 1.5% year on year for the next sort of 10, 20 years. Um, and at worst, something like 0.5%. And in lots of you, you, European countries, inflation is still relatively high. You know, like it's come down more than people expected in the UK. It's down to like 3.9%. I think that was that data out today. That's still above the Bank of England stated target of 2%. And this is only a relatively recent phenomenon. In the US, you know, annualized growth from the third quarter is about 5%. Wild. Yeah. You know, like that's just, those, those numbers that we can only dream of. You know, energy prices are, especially when you compare it to European prices, just ridiculously low. Uh, wage growth has been stronger. The inflation came down to basically 3% quite a few months ago, six months ago, five, six months ago, something like that, and it's stayed relatively low since. Um, and the dollar is still really strong. The dollar still, they can, they can still run these enormous surpluses. I mean, the US is predicted to run a, a government budget deficit of something like 7% in the coming years. And treasury yields are high, higher than they have been, but they're not scandalously high. They're not like anyone's really worried high. Um, and in a way, I think that some of the economic chaos you've seen across the world has only really strengthened the dollar. Um, I think you sort of see a tiny bit of that in the dollarization plans yeah. in Argentina and the fact that that 
has like come back into vogue. Uh, although I'd be aware of inferring too much from that, yeah. but it's obviously to do with Argentina's like specific domestic issues. But my point generally is that the American economy is doing way better than the European do, economy. Do you think that, um, you mentioned Biden's unpopularity. Do you think that his unpopularity suggests that despite those, those good economic numbers, that the people, that those gains aren't going to the people who, well, I wouldn't say the people who matter, I mean working people. So I think two things are simultaneously true. One is that the American public is just like unfairly pessimistic about the American economy. Like you can ask them specific questions where there are true and false answers yeah. about like the state of the American economy and the state of price increases in certain stuff, and they'll just get them wrong. They'll just say things are worse than they actually are. Um, another thing worth saying is that I think they can be too pessimistic in that there's this sort of like psychological phenomenon which we talked about in the podcast before, whereby when inflation is high and wage width is also high, people generally tend to blame the government for price increases and then take credit for wage increases, even though the two things are linked. You know, you're far more likely to get a wage increase in terms of high inflation for quite a lot of reasons than you are in terms of low inflation. And that means that even if your real wages are up, even if you've got like a wage increase above inflation, you're still often grumpy with the government because you see the price of stuff going up and you're like, well, my wage increase hasn't really worked because of these bloody Biden egg prices or whatever it is. Um, but there is also something I think that is sort of like, nonetheless, there is, there is a legitimacy to the uh, median American pessimism about the American economy. And that just stems from the fact that like, that, that with higher inflation, I don't think it's Biden's fault, with higher inflation just does come a degree of uncertainty. Um, and you know, like you can just see this and you, this is just what happens when you get high inflation. You get high inflation and you get more rapid changes in interest rates. You get strain showing in parts of the financial system. <clears throat> and that comes with a whole lot of economic anxiety and uncertainty, which people don't really like for yeah. obvious reasons. So I think there's, there's two things there. There's a sense in which Americans are just wrong about how the American economy is doing, but there's also a legitimate criticism to be made or like a legitimate anxiety to be had about the American economy. I read, it's gonna annoy me because I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it, but it was looking at uh, reasons, kind of trying to explain what you just, what you said. So reasons why people are anxious or pessimistic about the economy, despite the kind of headline numbers. And this, I think it might have been a Washington Post journalist, but they put forward the idea that uh, during the pandemic, the US had effectively created a, a, a welfare system that was a lot stronger than it had ever had. And people, so with the child tax credit, for example, um, and I know there was a, you know, one-off, um, uh, Stimulus, stimulus package, package. Um, and the the child tax credit, for example, was you can measure it, and it and it was remarkable in cutting child poverty. But they let it expire, yeah. and you know the stimulus package, the stimulus check was a one-off. Um, you kind of raised you raised people's like uh, expectations for what the government can and should do, and then took it away. And that part of that explains why they might feel same true is probably is probably similar in the UK. Same yeah. true is also yeah it's true of the UK. Something similar is also true of the UK in that like. I think after COVID and the experience of all of the support packages then, mm. you remember like the idea, Theresa May used to mock Jeremy Corbyn and say there's no magic money yeah. tree. And imagine trying to use that line now. Yeah. You'd be like, well, there was a magic money tree and you used it during COVID. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I think there are people who are better educated than me on this whole like uh, the, the distance between perception and reality when it comes to the American economy and the fact that Americans are generally pretty critical of Biden's handling of the economy, even though I think, especially given the international context, he's handled it pretty well, objectively. Um, but there are people better educated than me. The main point I want to make is I just think it's worth comparing the American economy yeah. to peer economies. You know, compare it to, can just compare it to Europe. That's the, that's the place to compare it to. I mean, the only economy that could historically maybe like compete with the US 
but even like GDP per capita was Germany. I mean, there are smaller countries that could, but like they're very specific circumstances. You know, like Norway can because it's got loads of oil and stuff, but that's not really the same. You know, the only like large Western European economy that looks similar in terms of its sort of makeup to the US and and could compete in terms of wealth used to be Germany, but. They've fallen off Yeah, Germany's Germany's having its constant economic woes at the moment. we're doing, you know, the, you know, the French and the UK have quite similar economic profiles, but both French, France and the UK can only really expect, you know, analysed GDP growth of a couple of percent going forward. Like, we're all looking at what we'd commonly describe as, like, stagnation, and the Americans just aren't. Um, and I think that's worth comparing. And then I also think that that leads me to my second point, which is that when it comes to foreign policy, yes, at first glance, it looks like America's having a terrible time. But I think if you just sort of step back a little bit, America's actually doing better in foreign policy than you probably think. I think you can split America's foreign policy theatres into three. I think you have China, or like Asia-Pacific, let's say. You have Russia slash Ukraine, and then you have the Middle East. So China, I think, is interesting. That There are a couple of things that have really changed from last year. I mean, the main one is just the rhetoric has toned down so significantly. Yeah. You know, you think about the end of last year, you had Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan. You had the PLA performing really quite advanced drills around Taiwan afterwards. And you had some pretty furious rhetoric coming out of not just from Xi Jinping, but also from like officials in his administration. There is like a soft detente that has sort of occurred since. You had the first meeting between Biden and Xi, which was, there was some odd clips yeah. coming out of that, the one where he yeah. was talking about his car. Yeah, um, and uh, he's going to send some pandas home to yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and there are still trade tensions, but I don't think you've had the rapid escalation of like, um, sanction, like trade related yeah. sanctions that we saw last year. Um, I think, the, the America, on the trade sanctions, the, the America hasn't been as effective as it probably would have hoped to. But I think the main thing with the, the China problem is that there are sort of two ways of seeing the US-China rivalry. One is sort of like geostrategic. You know, one is about like, who, can China take Taiwan? Can the US deter Taiwan? Who can maintain hegemony in certain critical like materials and technologies? And the other is economic. And the other is that one of the big anxieties, probably the anxiety that precedes the geostrategic anxiety in the American political class, was not that China was going to like win a war with America. It was that the Chinese economy was going to be bigger. Yeah. You know, there's real anxiety back in like 2016 when, in terms of purchasing power parity, China overtook the U.S. and everyone's like, oh god, this is you know, th- this is getting scary. We're no longer going to be this economy. And the reason that anxiety precedes the geostrategic anxiety and probably is just more important. Like the question of who has the big economy is the probably most important question. Is just because like whether or not you can fund uh, you know, like your big military and whether or not you can fund the protectionism to develop your own like homegrown strategically significant industries like chips, you know, whether or not you can afford to basically create your own little chip factories just depends in the first place on the economy. And the Chinese economy has a really tough year. Yeah. It's had a really tough couple of years and the American economy hasn't. And in that respect, you know, I think it's possible, it depends how you read the figures, that this will be the first year in quite a long time that in percentage growth terms, US GDP will increase by more than Chinese GDP. And that's just really good news from the American perspective. Like in that sense, they are winning. You know, you can talk as much as you want about like the PLA's military buildup, but quite fundamentally, if the US economy is just bigger than the Chinese economy, it's very, very hard for China to catch up yeah. in, in, for example, like military buildup and that sort of thing. And it's very, very hard for China to afford the sort of, well, I mean, maybe this is not, this is, this is complicated, but in broad strokes, it's hard for China to afford uh, the protectionism that has helped them develop um, monopolies in certain strategically significant materials and very advanced industries when it comes to certain strategically significant technologies. So it's very hard for them to afford, like, basically uh, protecting their dominate, 
children of like stuff like lithium supply chains and it's very hard for them to afford to develop their own like chip industries it's not impossible but it just makes it more difficult yeah. so i think if you compare it to maybe a year ago i think the, the china the, the the us is doing better when it comes to yeah. china than it maybe was a year ago um Middle East, again, at first glance, complete failure from the US. Like Biden, despite having quite a testy personal relationship with Netanyahu, has tried, you know, has basically tried to support Israel unequivocally and then maybe use that trust to convince Israel to tone things down. I mean, there have been lots of reports that privately Biden has been counseling Netanyahu to slow things down a little bit. Netanyahu hasn't like heeded any of his advice. But I think what the, the flip side to that is that the increased insecurity this is sort of paradoxical, but the increased insecurity in the Middle East reminds all of these Middle Eastern players, except for maybe Israel, but countries like Saudi Arabia, for example, that if they want stability in the Middle East, they need yeah. the big, the big, the big dog. They need like the, the Saudi Arabia will be anxious that having dissed Biden for the entirety of his premiership, yeah. if stuff kicks off between Iran and Saudi Arabia, the Saudis need the Americans. Everyone needs the Americans. I mean, there's something like deeply paradoxical about the fact that Russia and Saudi relations have been allowed to flourish only because America is currently stopping Iran yeah. from getting involved. Because once Iran comes in, that's a massive point of disagreement between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Um, something similar is true in China, by the way. The Chinese are so happy that the Americans are guaranteeing freedom of navigation in the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea because China relies on oil exports from there. So the second that goes away, you know, China's well, current sort of like economic woes get even worse. Um, so this is weird, like, sort of... Uh, contradiction almost in the US like Middle East policy in that even though it looks like it's been a failure the subsequent insecurity reminds people how much they need that the, America. Yeah, that, that the US is still very much in the game and yeah, the key the, player. It is the yeah. key player. Um, I think Saudi Arabia is, is perhaps most like extreme example of that. Like the Saudis if, if push comes to shove they probably will need American support to fight like a, a war in Yemen and then a war with Iran if that happens. Um, Sorry, this has been massive, but I do think it's quite yeah. interesting. I, I was going to say, we did a video, well, you wrote it, I think, last year about why 2022 was like a really great year for the US. So obviously you think it's continued through 2023. Do you think next year will continue in the same, same way? I do. I think America enjoys certain really structural advantages to other countries. Um, the last, before I get into why, one of the big reasons, I think, I think the, the last thing I'll say is that the, the third theatre is Ukraine. And I think America is losing in Ukraine. But in a sense, the, the main loser here is Europe. You know, if American funding for Ukraine dries up, same is true of European funding. If this, you know, if Ukraine's situation becomes a whole lot worse, the people who are most directly threatened are Europe. Yeah. America is it's stressful for it. It's, its allies are threatened, and Ukraine is a blemish on the American foreign policy record. But the people who mainly use it lose are Europe, and the people who have to really change how they do politics are the Europeans. Yeah. The Americans, what, they, they've got to just maintain their massive military industrial base. They're already spending significant amount of money on the military. It's us Europeans who all of a sudden have to make that choice between guns or butter. We're going to have to start spending less on public services and more on the military if we want to like, maintain sufficient deterrence against Russia. That's already sort of happening, you know? Um, and we're not even very good at it. You know, like we, we tried to develop our own like, defense industrial base, but as demonstrated by the fact that we can't get Ukraine the shells we promised it we would at the beginning of 2023. But serious limitations. Yeah, yeah. serious limitations. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's the thing with the Ukraine. I also think the other thing with Ukraine, by the way, is that a lot of people assume 
that Ukraine gets in real trouble if Trump comes in. I've mentioned this before. That is not Trump's po Trump's policy is not anti-Ukraine. It's very, very confused. But Trump's explicit comments on Ukraine, I think it was an interview with Fox News, he said, you know, I will get them down, I'll basically negotiate a deal on day one. And then they, the, and that's the quote that everyone like got. Then the host asked, you know, so what if you don't get a deal? And his next comment was, I will give Ukraine bigger weapons than they've ever seen. That's amazing from Ukraine's <laughs> perspective. That's exactly yeah. what Ukraine wants. And I think the thing with, and this, this all gets into like some sort of, I don't like doing this as like a journalist, like cheap psychoanalysis of major politicians, but it, I do think Trump is fundamentally a power politician. Yeah. And I think giving in to Putin, who's made it clear he doesn't want peace negotiations on current terms, is not, it just, it undermines America's sense of power. And so yeah. I think he's going to do it. And and there is, I, I, there is a world in which I can imagine that Zelensky might find it easier to persuade Donald Trump to give him certain weapon systems than he would Joe Biden. You know? So do I, yeah. I think, but just, it's, just, it's just a sort of, he's not as cautious, you know. Um, Trump is not as cautious. And, you know, privately, many American officials have basically said that the US policy towards Russia Ukraine was to, like, bleed Russia, yeah, which is just continuous getting support bit by bit. To, to make sure you never inflict like a full-on strategic defeat and the collapse of the Kremlin, but you make it so that Russia is constantly losing money, resources, like men, yeah. um, and being sort of attrited down uh, by the US and Ukraine, or by the US, let's say, via Ukraine. Um, and I don't think Trump is an attrition politician. <laughs> That's a good rhyme. Um, I just think he'll... I, I think, I think the, basically, I think too many people assume that once Trump comes in, that's the end of Ukraine. Yeah. I think that's how it will pan out. I suppose out. it's also who controls Congress and what of faction of the Republican Party is more dominant, I suppose. And I do think, by the way, that's the main threat to the US as a political, as a, like a geopolitical agent. It's actually internal. Yeah. It's just that the, the, the notion of loser's consent in, in America is really strained. Yeah. And I think if the, if the Republicans especially lose another election narrowly, especially given quite how many Republicans still believe that 2022 was stolen, 2020, yeah, 2020, 2020 was stolen, yeah. um, then I think you do have, the, there's a real risk of internal yeah. discord. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I think that the, the Ukraine thing, I also think, by the way, if Biden gets re-elected in Ukraine, all of a sudden things look very, very different. You know, then, sure, Ukraine is, is it's undeniable to say it's running out of like men and certain resources, but then, Putin all of a sudden is looking at another four years of what should be quite steady support for Ukraine, especially as you mentioned, if Biden also wins majorities in the Senate and the House. Um, and then that's, that completely changes strategic calculus from Putin's perspective. Then I think he is incentivized to do a deal because like, can he afford you know, another four years of spending an obscene yeah. amount of like, state expense, like the state budget on a wall security yeah. stuff yeah and, and you're, he's already running the economy quite hot you know russian inflation i think is about like seven percent at the moment and the russian central bank is warning that it's going a bit crazy um but anyway the, so sorry this is it's enormous but then again america is just it, like it sort of is the world yeah. so like you have to do all of it um <clears throat> on the what do i think like will, will america keep doing well yeah i think there are two sort of things that i think structurally advantage america going into not just 2024 but like <clears throat> let's say like the however many years, the next decade or so. The, the first is the, basically the dollar and America's fiscal position. The, the, basically the fact that the dollar is the world's reserve currency and America can borrow loads of money, it just has enormous, you know, it's got fiscal firepower, means that it's really well set up 
for a world of protectionism, which is sort of what we're entering into. I mean, like basically European governments across the world are rediscovering the language of like industrial strategy or sort of onshoring or friendshoring or that sort of thing. And like you can use whatever euphemism you want, but like fundamentally what that is about is it's protectionism. It's like it's defending your domestic industries. And we're all trying to do that. Everyone is speaking the language of Green New Deal. Everyone on the European left and in the, in the White House, you know, the Democrat part, Democrats, are talking about this Green New Deal. And as I mentioned before on the podcast, no one can do the Green New Deal like America. Yeah. America has the fiscal firepower. It has a pre-existing industrial base, unlike other countries, a massive domestic market, which should give it enough like sort of consumer demand to keep it going. Um, and you can see this most obviously with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. And it really, really upset the Europeans, especially Macron, who was like, well, come on, guys, we're supposed to be allies. Yeah. And you guys just did the Green New Deal without telling any of yeah. us. <laughs> and now what do we do? It's, it's kind of awkward for, I mean, using like Keir Starmer as an example, but for other politicians in the EU, when they say they want to emulate things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. But, you know, they have that idea, but then they can't back it up with the, the financial uh, support that those kind of things need. Yeah, these you know, things are just not universalizable. You can't yeah. all do the same Green New Deal. You have to do different Green New Deals. There's just not sufficient global demand if you all start building the same wind turbines. You know, if everyone onshores their wind turbine industry, we're going to end up with too many wind turbines. It's not complicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that's one of them. I also think it's energy. And I, this is something, by the way, if you're, uh, people are interested, Helen Thompson from Cambridge writes stuff about this the whole time. It's amazing. Uh, she wrote a book called Disorder, and I recommend everyone reading. Um, but the, America has just structural advantages when it comes to energy, which have just become so apparent this year. I mean, it's quite astonishing. So I think first is the, the IRA, the fact that America can do reshoring. It can move like its sort of solar and wind power yeah. industries back onshore. Um, but in the, to make that energy transition, one of the paradoxes of the energy transition is that to, to do all that industrial stuff. You need a lot of oil in the first place. You need a lot of hydrocarbons to build all that stuff in the first place. And the only country with domestic access to that sort of amount of oil and gas is America. And unlike basically every other country, by the way, America has both oil and gas, which is, it's just wild. And you see, I think this, the, 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 probably the most like brutal expression of American energy power at the moment. The Americans want lower oil prices. They want lower oil prices because uh, domestic reasons, they want to keep, you know, Biden wants to stay popular, there's a very strong correlation between low oil prices and high presidential approval ratings. They want it because high oil prices are good for Putin and Russia, and they're also good for Iran. Mm -hmm. Every other big player in the oil market wants the opposite. They want structurally high oil prices. You know, MBS wants high oil prices to fund Vision 2030. Putin obviously wants high oil prices to afford his war in Ukraine. Um, and they're doing all they can. They're, they're coordinating production cuts yeah. via OPEC+. Plus. Um, and yet, the price of oil, despite the fact that there is disruption in the Red Sea, is below $80 a barrel, which in real terms is not high. It really is not high. Um, and that's just because the Americans are producing tons of oil. Yeah. And America can just turn the taps on like that. And, and that is just, it's, it, that sort of, that ability is just, it's so fundamental to American power, at least, as like, at least by Helen Thompson's reading and, and my reading as well. Um, and I just think it's such a strategic advantage going into the 2020s and 2030s. Yeah. I just think basically the main thing at the moment is going to, energy has always been really important for loads of reasons, both for like geopolitical and economic reasons. But the next decade and the decade after, 
they are energy decades. It's about the energy transition and it's about fueling the energy transition. And America just has certain structural advantages in those respects that no other country has. Um, it's good to be an American. <laughs> it's really yeah. good to be an American. I mean, we are a dying <laughs> empire. <laughs> There's no aspiration here anymore, Americans. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, anyway. So that is my thing. I think, yeah, and that, just caveat that was saying, America has a sort of a horrible, there are loads of things wrong with America. Yeah. I'm not disputing that. I'm not saying it's like the best place to be. I'm just saying that from a strategic perspective, America is doing a lot better than the commentary would superficially suggest. That's all I'm saying. Okay, apologies for the world's longest unimportant story section. Uh, we are now on to what's sometimes known as the fun bit of the podcast, uh, the global leader leaderboard, um, where we basically say who's had a good time since we last did the podcast, which was only two days ago, um, and we move them up or down. So shall we start? Well, why don't yeah. we do both? Because I'm going to walk over okay. and do yeah. it. So tell me, why don't you start with who's gone down? So this is, well, there's a lot of pressure here because it's the this will be what the board looks like to end 2023, so um, yeah. Are we going down first? Yeah, go on. Okay, so I'm gonna move down Emmanuel Macron, having oh, moved him up two it. days ago. <laughs> um, so my logic here might take a bit of explaining. So he just managed to get his immigration law through the National Assembly, which on the face of it is a, is a success because it was kind of hard fought for and he managed to do it. But it came at quite a big political cost and kind of created or exposed these fractures in his in his um alliance effectively um because it got this bill which effectively toughens up immigration law quite quite dramatically um, it initially got rejected by the national assembly because by the left saying it was not uh, saying it was too harsh by the right saying it was not harsh enough it went to this joint committee parliamentary committee where the french government effectively toughened up the bill even more and managed to win the support of the republicans and national rally led by marine le pen who said that it was now good enough for her MPs to vote for it, which uh, was kind of a, some people called it a kiss of death because you know when, if Marine Le Pen says she wants to vote for a bill, that means a lot of this kind of centrist, the, the kind of more left-leaning parts of Macron's alliance, relatively left-leaning, uh, suddenly become very uneasy with that. Um, Marine Le Pen said these amendments had made, were an ideological victory for her, um, which kind of rubs things in even more. Um, so it eventually passed uh, thanks to those changes, but uh, it was the biggest, I think it was the biggest rebellion by uh, members of Macron's own coalition. I think 29 or so voted against it, and also at least one minister has resigned, and there's reports that others are threatening to resign. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just exposed these real divisions in his camp that he's going to have to deal with for the next four, uh, three or four years now, because he doesn't have this he doesn't have a parliamentary majority, he's going to need the support of other parties. And um, it's also further cemented Marine Le Pen's kind of status as a political actor. You know, she managed to get these concessions and effectively got this law passed thanks to her support. Um, and there's recent polling that suggests that her party, National Rally, are being considered less as a party of opposition and more of a party capable of governing, which is all bad news for Macron. So. For that reason, he's going down, I'm afraid. I just realised how much my head is cut off in this <laughs> video. Um, yeah, okay, that's, that's very good. It's actually quite a deep analysis. I would have superficially put him up, yeah. judging by the headlines. I mean, he got it passed in the end, but fair enough. Um, so who is going up then? Uh, I'm going to put uh, Ursula von der Leyen up. 
Oh, that's uh, rogue. Yeah. So this is uh, because, so quite on a similar theme to the Macron one actually, the European oh, the Union the finally, yeah, finally yeah. agreed on this migration pact, which is years and years in the making. Um, so the leaders of the Europe, of European nations came to an agreement a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and that now they finally come to an agreement with the European Parliament through which this pact has to pass. So that is a big success. Um, obviously not just her, but like as the kind of representative of the European Union on that board, I'm giving that. Yeah, I think that's fair. W to her. My one for going down, let's, I think we start on down, didn't we? Or do we start on up? Yeah, down, is Mohammed bin Salman. And he's going down for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned a second ago, oil prices are still just nowhere near as high as you want them, despite the fact that we've now got a crisis in uh, the Red Sea and the Bab al-Mandab Strait. Um, second is the developments in Yemen have really undermined the, the peace negotiations that have been ongoing. There's been a ceasefire since April 2022, and it really looked like there was going to be peace at some point yeah. soon. Uh, and that no longer looks ha um, possible. And the last reason is it if the, the last thing is basically the risk of war with Iran, and that would probably be catastrophic for the Saudis. I think it's very unlikely to happen. I really do. I think the, the Iranians have been conspicuously dovish so far, but there's nonetheless an increasing chance, even if it's not high in absolute terms. There's an increasing chance of war, especially given what's happening in Yemen, um, and that will force the Saudis back to the Americans, which would be politically embarrassing. It would also just be catastrophic for. Saudi Arabia's economic prospects and its hopes of normalization in the Middle East, um, which have already been slightly scuppered by the Gaza crisis. Um, my person going up, I attempted to put him up Macron, but I'm not going to. I'm going to put up Keir Starmer. To and the very top. I know, I it's the really great reflection of my political ideology, Starmer and Putin at the very, very Starmer, top, and what that says. But anyway, the, the reason I'm putting him up is I think that one of his big difficulties in uh, not just like, not necessarily electorally, but when it comes to party management has been Gaza and the fact that Starmer has so far, presumably in part because he wants to distance himself from Jeremy Corbyn, been pretty pro-Israel when it comes to Starmer. Uh, and the fact that the government has now started calling for what it describes as a sustainable ceasefire, which is worth just mentioning is not an immediate ceasefire. It's a... Uh, a sort of ceasefire that would actually be constructive to a wider Gaza-Israel peace means he now has the political space to call for a ceasefire himself. Um, and that makes life very easy for him. There's, he can just mirror the government. And I think that that's going to be good for him. And also, he's still doing pretty well. He's still at the top of, you know, he's, he's still 20 points ahead. Yeah. So I think that is everything. Um, thank you very much for listening uh, to yet another episode of the TLDR podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and we will see you again, not next week, but uh, probably in 2024. So happy new year and uh, well, Merry Christmas. Um, and thank you for watching.